This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court has denied all current petitions challenging the court-created doctrine of qualified immunity. That doctrine protects government officials, most notably police officers, from the natural legal consequences of violating Americans' constitutional rights. The lone dissenter, Justice Clarence Thomas, is also the justice who invited the public to bring cases challenging that doctrine. Cato's Jay Schweikert and Clark Neely discuss what the court did And they note that the controversy around qualified immunity simply cannot go away until the doctrine itself does. Jay Schweikert, uh, it appears that the Supreme Court has turned down uh, all currently outstanding petitions dealing with qualified immunity. Uh, As you said before uh, we started recording, you are still a bit tilted. Um, But you also, uh, in a public statement, uh, sent out by the Cato Institute, you said this was a shocking dereliction of duty. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Uh, This issue is a mess that the Supreme Court created needlessly by rewriting our primary federal civil rights statute in a way that has blunted both the deterrent and remedial effects of that statute and has contributed in a significant way to our present crisis of confidence in law enforcement. Uh, these cases were perfectly positioned for the court to begin reconsidering and pulling back this doctrine. And in my view, frankly, there was no excuse for the court not to take up at least one of these cases. All right. So uh, you also mentioned that the International Association of Chiefs of Police put out a defense of of qualified immunity recently. And, and, you know, it's obviously very disappointing that the court is not going to look at any of these cases and we don't really know why. But what was their defense of this court invented doctrine and uh, how do you respond to it? The main defense that the International Association of Chiefs of Police put up was simply a misrepresentation of what qualified immunity is. Uh, They advanced the spurious argument that uh, qualified immunity, uh, you know, it only protects, you know, protects officers when uh, is needed to protect officers acting in good faith uh, and protects the ability of officers to respond to immediate incidents and make split second decisions without fear of liability. But in actuality, officers are already protected for good faith decisions under the Fourth Amendment itself. In other words, when officers are actually acting in good faith, they're not violating anyone's constitutional rights. And so you don't need qualified immunity to protect them. Qualified immunity only comes into play when a police officer is acting objectively unreasonably under the circumstances known to them at the time. So whether that was a misunderstanding by the IACP or Uh, just an intentional misrepresentation about what the doctrine is. Um, It just doesn't reflect the way these cases actually work in practice. All right. uh, To you, Clark, um, what are some possible reasons why the court delayed, 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 and then ultimately denied all of these cases dealing with qualified immunity? Yeah, that's the $64,000 question, and nobody knows. The Supreme Court's decision-making process uh, regarding cert petitions uh, is very close to a black box. I think what we can fairly suppose is that the qualified immunity issue was on the Supreme Court's radar screen uh, as you know something that, that deserved uh, a, maybe a more careful look. 
than they often give the average cert petition. But for whatever reason, uh, the Supreme Court decided not to get involved at this point. I think there's a couple possibilities. Uh, one is the court's awareness that Congress is now looking uh, at the possibility of reforming or even eliminating qualified immunity and perhaps wanted to keep the pressure on Congress uh, to see that through by removing any uh, hope that the Supreme Court was on the verge of cleaning up this mess itself. And if that was part of the justices' uh, thinking in denying all of these qualified immunity cert petitions, then hopefully Congress will receive that message and become even more serious about cleaning up the mess. We keep referring to it as a mess, and it really is. It, 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 qualified immunity is just an astonishingly bad policy. It produces horrific results, and it really has created, it is the cornerstone of our near-zero accountability policy for law enforcement, and it is a huge contributing factor in creating the conditions uh, for the kinds of misconduct that we saw in Minneapolis, uh, the, the brutal and senseless killing uh, of an unarmed and and uh, handcuffed, unresisting uh, black man by a police officer. That's going to keep happening, and the Supreme Court and Congress between them are going to own a bunch of it. And so one or both branches needs to get a lot more serious about cleaning up this mess. Yeah, so Justin Amash, uh, the sole libertarian in the U.S. Congress, has uh, sponsored a bill that would effectively end qualified immunity. It has support from Republicans. It has support from Democrats in the House. It is, to borrow the phrase, tripartisan. Uh, Senator Tim Scott um, from South Carolina said on one of the morning talk shows that he sort of referred to qualified immunity, uh, ending it, as a poison pill. Uh, that would be, uh, if included in legislation, effect effectively would kill that legislation. Yeah, that's a really unfortunate, uh, I think, marker to put down. Um, of course, we're not involved in the legislative process ourselves, but we certainly have been in touch with uh, members of Congress uh, to share our views on what would be the uh, better policy right now than the one we have currently. And uh, to put down a marker like that, to dig in one's feet uh, on on one specific issue this early in the legislative process seems to me uh, both unfortunate, but but very clearly deliberate. And so it will be interesting to see whether there's any room to retreat from that position. I will say one more thing. Uh, this is such a fluid environment that uh, we will almost certainly be in a different place a week and a month from now uh, than we are today. And of course, there's also the possibility that we're going to be looking at a much, much different Congress, possibly also a different president in January. And I think neither of those points should be overlooked. Uh, so to the extent that, that uh, Democrats are uh, at least amenable to this idea of, of ending qualified immunity, and there's obviously a pretty clear-cut piece of legislation that that is has been offered, I wonder if... Uh, Democrats are breathing a sigh of relief at the notion that Republicans in the Senate are considering this a poison pill. That is, I wonder the extent to which Democrats would be committed to the idea of making this substantial change. I think it's hard to say. And um, I mean, I will note that, I mean, I, I think it was 
it doesn't seem clear to me that uh, Tim Scott speaks for all Republicans on this issue, because, of course, there already is a Republican co-sponsor on uh, Justin Amash's bill. Uh, other Republicans in both the House and the Senate have either make, put out written statements or made statements on the floor uh, calling for you know Congress to address qualified immunity. Um, Senator Rand Paul said something to this effect uh, a few weeks ago. And while he hasn't you know, officially announced support for any particular bill, uh, I think there are Republicans who are aware of how serious this problem is and are interested in addressing it. And maybe that takes a slightly different form than one of the current legislative proposals. Uh, but I would not at this point conclude that this is a non-starter for Republicans across the board. It may be for some of them, but it may be for some Democrats also. So I think, you know, on the legislative side, as Clark said, we're still in a fluid situation uh, and I'm optimistic that a a strong bipartisan or tripartisan group of uh, members of Congress will see what a common sense reform this is. So uh, there was one dissent from the denial of cert uh, on these cases. That was Justice Thomas. He's uh, notably also the justice who seemed pretty clearly to invite uh, people to bring cases to the U.S. Supreme Court on this issue. What does that mean? So Justice Thomas uh, originally wrote back in 2017 that you know this was an issue the court needed to take up because this doctrine appears to lack any textual or historical basis. And he elaborated on that point today, and he just lays out the very simple and, in my view, uh, pretty slam dunk argument that this doctrine has no justification from the text of our main federal civil rights statute, nor is it consistent with the history, the common law history against which that statute was passed. And, you know, Justice Thomas tries to get the law right whenever he can. And so that, you know, in, in my view, it's, it makes sense that he has continued to call for reconsidering this doctrine. Uh, it is, you know, it is disappointing that no one joined him in that regard. Um, I was hopeful that, you know, Justice Gorsuch, who has otherwise been a very principled advocate of textualism and originalism, uh, would join this call. I, obviously, we don't know why he decided not to. Um, and it's disappointing that Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg, who have previously uh, criticized the doctrine as becoming an absolute shield for law enforcement, um, you know, weren't interested in these cases. Again, we don't know why. Maybe there will be future cases that they will find more appealing. But for now, Justice Thomas continues to be the lone voice on the court explicitly calling for this doctrine to be reconsidered. Um, it What is perhaps hopeful, at least it, uh, to my mind about this, is that uh, this issue creates a lot of very, uh, what you would think are strange bedfellows. That is Justice Thomas and uh, the groups that are out in the streets marching for uh, police accountability um, and some, some Republicans at least, and police unions. Well, I'm not sure that any police unions themselves have come out in opposition to this doctrine, but there certainly are members of law enforcement. No, I have, I'm sorry. When I say some Republicans, I mean Republicans and police unions being oh, on the oh, same yeah, yeah. side of yeah, that no, issue. Exactly. No, it is. It does create non-traditional political alliances. Um, and I think you see that uh, most notably in the group of uh, the what we've been calling our cross-ideological amicus brief, urging the Supreme Court to reconsider this doctrine that includes libertarian groups, conservative groups, very progressive groups, uh, and even a law enforcement group, the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. So, you know, in that regard, I think both among the judiciary, uh, among in the public policy and academic space, and even uh, in the legislative space, yeah, this this issue is not your traditional left-right divide or conservative-liberal divide. 
Clark, does that give you hope? The fact that there, it's, it's sort of reshuffled typical ideological alliances here? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that uh, we're really seeing um, the emergence of an issue that, that exposes people's true principles. Uh, and this is not the right time to be beholden to the narrow parochial interests of the law enforcement community. Um, our criminal justice system, as I wrote recently, is absolutely rotten to the core. And the amount of uh, discretion and authority that we give to police officers mandates a corresponding level of accountability. And we've gotten that exactly flipped around. Police officers are not held to the same standard as ordinary citizens. They're not held to a higher standard than ordinary citizens as they should be. Instead, they are held to a vastly lower standard of accountability than you or I or any other ordinary citizen. That is ultimately an unsustainable policy. And I firmly believe the only question is going to be who's going to fix it. Not whether it's going to be fixed, but who's going to fix it and when. So we should expect, uh, one, more cases to be brought to the Supreme Court, petitions uh, at least, to uh, for consideration by the Supreme Court. Uh, legislation appears to be uh, moving forward. Do you believe that this is an issue that is going to, um, I don't think, go away or really even fade into the background, at least in the near term? But uh you know, Clark, as you said, it's it's uh, maybe a matter of who ultimately uh, fixes it. Um, what I mean, if you had to predict right now, over the next ten months, what's going to occur? What what would you say is the most likely path? Uh, the police will continue to kill unarmed people, um, including primarily unarmed black people. Um, the uh, there will be other abuses and unjustified uh, uses of force. That is a uh, an endemic uh, part of our of our system, unfortunately, tragically. Uh, and lower courts will continue giving uh, police and other government officials a free pass in cases where they have violated people's rights, because of course that is the primary function of qualified immunity in our system. Uh, and now that it's on people's radar screen, and now that people understand that qualified immunity really is the cornerstone of our near zero accountability policy for law enforcement, the spotlight is never going to be removed from qualified immunity until qualified immunity is itself removed from our system. I believe that absolutely. Yeah, it's not just that this issue won't go away. It cannot go away uh, because the injustices that it abets and permits are going to continue getting worse and continue contributing to our already serious crisis of confidence in law enforcement. Jay Schweikert is a policy analyst, and Clark Neely is the vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute. You can learn more about qualified immunity at unlawfulshield.com and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.